this is uh, Terry and Jesse's show. Terry's uh, taking a day off. He's a uh, much-needed rest. This is the Terry and Jesse show. This is High Energy Blue, Blue Collar Catholic Radio. We invite you to this holy hour of power. Uh, we're going to be having, a little later, we're going to be having Father Dwight Longnecker. He wrote a book. It's called The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. Can't wait to get into it. We could use a little bit of good news. I want to remind you that we're still in the month of November. Each uh, November is dedicated to commemorating those who have died and departed to their heavenly home, we hope. And it all began with All Saints Day, celebrated on November 1st, to remember all the numerous holy souls who have died, and we hope they will enter heaven one day, or they're in heaven. Then we celebrated, remember All Saints Day as well, that was celebrated mainly to honor all the hundreds and thousands of holy souls that have entered into heaven, but... They don't have any specific day dedicated to their honor. This practice began in 1261 AD when the church began to honor martyrs on November 1st. Later, all those holy souls who lived the life of extraordinary holiness on earth also began to be remembered on November 2nd, which we call All Souls Day. We call them the faithful departed. The practicing the practice of remembering all the all the dead is believed to have been instituted by St. Odillo of Cluny in the year 1030 AD. But this practice actually comes from the Jews in the Old Testament. They prayed for their beloved dead. Okay, let's get down to some soul food. Then uh, we're going to have the highly anticipated Catholic priest, Father Dwight Lem- Longnecker, now that we're entering the Advent season. And Christmas, just to follow, we're going to be uh, get his reflections on the secret of the Bethlehem shepherds. But today's holy gospel, Luke chapter 21, verses 5 to 11, while some people were speaking about how the temple was adorned with costly stones and votive offerings, Jesus said, all that you see here, the days will come when there will not be left a stone upon another, that, uh, upon another stone that will not be thrown down. Then they asked him, Teacher, when will this happen? And what sign will there be when all these things are about to happen? He answered, See that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has come. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for such things must happen first. But it will not immediately be the end. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be powerful earthquakes, famines and plagues from place to place. And awesome sights and mighty signs will come from the sky. That was today's gospel at Holy Mass, the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A couple of things I want to say about today's gospel is that this is a, we, we, this is tantamount or this is analogous to the, the Olivet Discourse in the gospel of Matthew where our Lord is foretelling the, the devastation of Jerusalem. Uh, and he, he's using the language of, an, of, a, of several Old Testament images and themes. And guess what? Jesus' words, they were confirmed about a generation later when the Romans trampled the city of Jerusalem and the temple to the ground in about 70 AD. And the catastrophe was a historical preview of the end of the world showing how God's judgment upon one nation of Israel at the end of the Old Covenant 
prefigures the judgment of all nations at the end of the world. And these stones that, that our Lord talks about in verse 5, Herod the Great began to renovate and expand the Jerusalem temple around 19 BC, and the structure was immense with many of its stones measuring nearly 40 feet in length. And according to our Lord, uh, their appearance was indestructible, but that was only an illusion. And in verse 8, where our Lord says, many will come in my name, in the first, in first century Palestine, they experienced a surge of what we would call messianic fervor. There was many people that claimed to be uh, this military messiah who would lead Israel to overthrow the Romans, but they failed time and time again. And in verse uh, 12, our Lord also says today, where he warns about those that will persecute you, we have to realize that anybody who is a friend of Jesus has never been a friend of the world. As disciples of Christ, we must fearlessly identify with Jesus despite the opposition. And uh, persecution, all it does is provide us opportunities to proclaim the gospel. I mean, I was a cop. I worked in, in law enforcement for many years. I worked in the largest jail in the world, Los Angeles County Jail. Sometimes I look at my wife and I tell her, I may end my days up in jail because I am not going to stop speaking the truth to power, uh, governmental powers, uh, you know, the, the culture of death. And if it means that one day I lose my freedom, a, a retired Los Angeles cop, so be it. Well, that's enough for today's gospel. My guest is on Father Dwight Longnecker. Uh, I've known him for a long time. I haven't seen him in a long time. Welcome to the Terry and Jesse Show, my friend. Thank you so much. So, fa- Father, you wrote a book, and I, and, and I want to just uh, bring a little bit of a peace and solace into my soul and the soul of the audience. We're going to be entering uh, or we, the Advent season, the Christmas season, and uh, you've written a book called The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. Well, f- first of all, for those of, for those that don't know you, can you give, give a little bit of your bio? I know you weren't born and raised Catholic, correct? Yeah, I was brought up in an evangelical home in Pennsylvania, and after high school, attended the fundamentalist Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, after that, I went to England and studied uh, theology at Oxford University in preparation to be an Anglican priest, uh, a priest in the Church of England. I was then ordained and served over there for 15 years, uh, married an English woman, and eventually the Lord led us into the full communion with the Catholic Church in 1995. And then after 10 years of waiting, uh, I was the Lord opened the door for me to return to the USA and be ordained in South Carolina. And uh, that was under the what's called the pastoral provision, a special provision given for uh, convert clergy from the Anglican Church to be ordained as Catholic priests, even though we have wives and children. So, Father, are you part of the Anglican ordinariate? I am not. No, I was ordained before that was established by Pope Benedict, okay. and um, therefore I am a diocesan priest in the Diocese of Charleston. Oh, okay. I just say that because here at the Sacred Heart Chapel, the headquarters for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, we, we, are, uh, we are serviced by uh, the Anglican Ordinary right here in, at the chapel at headquarters. Uh-huh. But uh, yeah, so Father, so you wrote a book, and, uh, and uh, the publisher is Sophia Institute. Um, the book is called... The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. So I think here's a good place to start, Father. Who were these shepherds, and why are they significant to St. Luke in the Nativity narrative? Well, first of all, you have to put the whole thing into context, and that's what I tried to do in the book, 
was to give the historical context and background for the shepherds, who are such a, a favorite feature of the nativity story, the Christmas story as it's told, you know, year by year. And really to understand their background and to understand their context, we have to look at the Bedouin culture. Mm. The Bedouin are the nomadic shepherds of the Middle East. And their culture goes right back to uh, ancient, to historic, to, to um, ancient Old Testament times. In fact, what in my, in my research, I came across a very interesting book by a modern-day scholar and researcher who spent a lot of time with modern-day Bedouin. And he traced a lot of their customs and their culture and even their furnishings and their, and their buildings, even today in the 21st century, back thousands of years to references in the Old Testament. Wow. So this is a very ancient culture. Basically, it's the nomadic shepherd culture of the ancient of the ancient Middle East, but still active today. So, when you go to the middle to the Holy Lands today, you will see in 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 uh, Israel, in Jordan, and elsewhere, you will see the Bedouin who are still living in their tents and still tending their flocks in the way that they've done for thousands of years, and they shed light on who what the Bethlehem shepherds would have been like in the time of our Lord's birth. <clears throat> I've been I've been to the Holy Land a few times, Father, and I remember one of the the guides told us in one of the trips that in the shepherd's field, that's where King David wrote Psalm twenty three, according to Jewish tradition. I found that kind of interesting. But uh, the, the shepherds were also the place where the angels said, "Glory to God in the highest, and peace to people of goodwill." Correct? I think it's in Luke two forty one. Uh, wasn't it directed to these shepherds? Yeah, these particular shepherds, of course, would have been situated in Bethlehem, which was the city of David. Therefore, in addition to the Bedouin culture, Bedouin is a general terminology for a lot of different um, nomadic shepherd tribes all across uh, sort of Egypt, uh, is present-day Israel, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and so forth. But these particular Bedouin would have been descended from Abraham and would have traced their family background to King David, uh, and they were part of the clan that was living there in the city of David in Bethlehem. So these were particularly Hebrew or Jewish Bedouin. Father, what inspired you to write this particular book at such a time as this, right before Christmas it came out? That's, <clears throat> uh, you know, what was going on in your pastoral mind? They said, I got to put a book out like this. Well, it started really with my a book that I published about five years ago, five years ago called The Mystery of the Magi. I first began investigating the historicity of the infancy narratives by finding out who the Magi were. And that book is also still available called The Mystery of the Magi. And after that, the success of that book, I thought, well, let's look at the shepherds and see what we can learn about them. I had two months sabbatical. Hold, hold that thought, um, Father. We're going to a hard break. Hold that thought. Yeah, we'll okay. be right back. We're here with Father Dwight Longnecker. We're talking about his book, The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. More with Father Longnecker. We're back to Terry and Jesse show. We're on with Father Dwight Longnecker. He wrote a book called The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. Good book to pick up right before the Christmas season. Well, we're about to start the Advent season and the Christmas season. So, uh, Father, culturally speaking, how did the Society of Jesus' time view shepherds? Well, the shepherds were really pretty much at the bottom of the, of the cultural pecking order. Uh, they were considered to be 
obviously working class. They were farmers, and because of their uh, the, the 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 sort of dirtiness of their of their job with you know animals and feces and with giving birth and so forth, they were considered by the Jewish authorities to be ritually unclean and therefore not worthy to come and worship in the temple. So, but also in the wider culture, in the in the um, Roman period, they were also regarded to be pretty shifty characters. Um, they had a reputation for uh, not paying their taxes. They had a reputation for maybe a little bit of rustling on the side, a little bit of something. And so, generally, speakers were not reputable people. Got it. But at the uh, same time, uh, but at the same time, within the Hebrew tradition, within the Jewish tradition, there's this great sort of um, respect for the role of the shepherd. Uh, you know, King David was the shepherd king. He wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. In the book of Ezekiel, God says, I will come and be the shepherd of my people Israel. So at the same time, there's this kind of reverence for shepherds, even though in the practical day-to-day -day life, uh, the shepherds were regarded to be kind of shifty and, and, and low-class characters. So Father, tell us a little bit about your time that you spent in Israel. You were there on a sabbatical. What did you learn about the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus from a historical perspective that you want to share with us? Well, the reason I, I, I uh, decided to do this during my two-month sabbatical in Jerusalem was because I'm aware that the Christmas story is uh, sort of encumbered by lots of traditions and lots of legends over the last 2,000 years. It's a very beautiful story, and a story which just naturally is very attractive to people. You know, it's got a baby, it's got a mother and a child, it's got a mother and a father who are in a, in a in a difficult situation. It's got animals, you know, camels and donkeys and little lambs and so forth. It's all a very attractive story. So therefore, it attracted an awful lot of uh, accumulated legends and and myths and and uh, uh, embellishments to the story. We'll say because the story in Matthew and Luke's gospel is actually very very minimal and very spare. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> over the years, it developed that the wise men were magical wizards from a faraway land who followed a magical star across the desert sands as they rode their camels on this mystical journey. You know, there was the story of the, the, the little shepherd, the drummer boy, the fourth wise man, all these extra stories accumulated. And the problem with that, and there's no problem with it technically, as long as we know that's what they are. But the problem in my mind is that at the same time, an awful lot of other magical elements crept into the Christmas story. Uh, Santa Claus, who rides across, across the sky and a flying with his flying reindeer, and he comes down your chimney every Christmas Eve, singing snowmen, um, you know, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, all sorts of magical Christmas carols. And so before too long, the stories of Jesus' birth also begin to be categorized in people's minds as yet another part of this wonderful fairy tale we tell each other every Christmas. And I wanted to go back and say, yeah, but, okay, Underneath all of that ma magical sort of decorations and so forth, there is a real historical story. What can we learn about the historical story and why it's important? Yeah, a lot of those incrustations, they come from Europe. Maybe a lot of them come from America. But I don't think a Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer goes all the way back to the Holy Land. Uh, no. <laughs> right, yeah. So, yeah, those are but, more but there's but there are some other things. Let me give you an example. There's some other things which we take as part of that Christmas story, which aren't actually in Matthew and Luke. For instance, Matthew does not tell us that the wise men rode on camels. 
Okay, Luke does not tell us that the Blessed Virgin Mary rode on a donkey on her way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Okay, that's not in the story. Okay, there's no ox and ass in this in in the stable in Bethlehem. That came in later because of a biblical interpretation from the prophecy of Isaiah. So for all sorts of reasons, which I discuss in the book, these extra things crept in, and we now tell them as part of the whole story. But in fact, uh, they're not really there. Would you say that those uh, things that have been embedded into the story would that be tradition with a small t or tradition with a capital T? No, tradition with a small t. I'll give you another another example. <laughs> we all have our nativity sets, which are look like a rustic stable, you know, with a sort of rustic beams and a, a thatched roof and so forth. This comes to us from St. Francis in, what is it, the 13th century, in which he created a stable according to the typical European medieval understanding of a stable, which is a drafty old shed or a drafty old barn. But in fact, when we do the research and look at the archaeological evidence, and for that matter, if you go to the Holy Lands today, you will see Bedouin tents and simple houses built in front of caves in the hillside. And we learned from the archaeological and historical evidence that all around Bethlehem, they lived in the, they, they didn't live in the caves, but they built their homes in front of caves, and they used the caves for stabling and for storage. So when people say, was Jesus born in a cave or in a stable? We can say he was born in a cave that was being used as a stable. So um, all of these interesting details help us to really understand more, more, more facts about the, the historical Christmas story. So uh, w why is the town of Bethlehem significant? Be just I know that's the birth of our Lord and Savior, but before, before that, was it significant to the Jews? Yeah, it was the birthplace of uh, King David. He was the shepherd king, and therefore the prophecies that the Messiah would come from the line of David also indicates that he's going to be born in the city of David. And so the city of David is Bethlehem. And that's why the prophecies are fulfilled that St. Joseph and the Blessed Virgin travel back to Bethlehem and the, the Christ child is born there. Do, uh, does it, Father, does Bethlehem, does it mean house of bread? I've read some accounts. Yeah, it... this is a beautiful preaching point, okay? The, the coincidence is that Jesus is laid in a manger and a manger is the feeding trough for the animals. But Bethlehem, this the, the, the name Bethlehem means house of bread in Hebrew, and there's the bread of life, but in Aramaic and Arabic, Bethlehem actually means house of flesh. Ooh. So there's this, there's this beautiful connection where Jesus, the bread of life, is also gives us his body and his blood. And so the manger, which, and in French, of course, manger means to eat, the manger is the, um, the, the the sort of chalice, if you like, or the cyborium from which the animals eat their hay, but the bread of life is also laid there. And this bread of life is also the flesh which he gives for the life of the world. Boy, that 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 name and that location is just pregnant with the Catholic theology. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So why were the manger and the swaddling clothes assigned to the shepherds? And why were they so important to St. Luke to note in his gospel? Well, you know, there's a beautiful... Um, detail which is out there in the sort of Christmas traditions that the Bethlehem shepherds were actually raising the Passover lambs which would be sacrificed in the temple six miles away and that when the lambs were born they would wrap them in strips of cloth and lay them in a feeding trough waiting for the priest to come and examine them 
to make sure that they were worthy to be the Passover lamb. Therefore, the story goes, the shepherds understood from the angels that if this child was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, he was, they were looking at the real Passover lamb, the real lamb of God. So well, the, I, was, I was intrigued by this story. I mean, it's a beautiful story. And one of the reasons I went to Jerusalem to research this book was to try as hard as I could to see if I could find any evidence for this story. And I have to tell you, I looked through all the biblical evidence. I looked through all of the um, theological evidence. I looked through all the writers I could find on the history and the archaeology of the background of the Hebrew tradition. I spoke to Hebrew scholars. I spoke to Jewish scholars from the Hebrew University of, of Jerusalem. I went to Bethlehem and spoke to shepherds who are still there today about how they treat their baby lambs and so forth. And I did not find any evidence at all that this story has any 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 foundation. So I think it's a beautiful tradition yeah. where maybe some clever theologians or preachers put together those details and said, would it be great if this was if this was true? Um, I didn't find any evidence that it is. So we have to therefore ask, why was it an important sign um, to the shepherds? And I believe it was an important sign because, as I show in some of the details in the book, that's the way their children were born and treated. The shepherds that I met in Bethlehem said, we don't treat our lambs that way, but we do wrap our children up in swaddling clothes even today. Uh, and we understand from all the details, which I explained in the book, that the manger would have actually been part of a very ordinary house in Bethlehem. And so the sign to the shepherds was, here is this baby who is being born, and he is just like one of you, born into one of your homes, laid in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, just like your babies are. So he's one of you. He will be the new shepherd king. We're talking with Father Dwight Longnecker. His book's called The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. You can pick up the book from Sophia Institute Press. Sophia Institute Press. The book is called The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. Father, I find it very interesting that the first people to come and adore Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, were, were the very poor shepherds. Then after that came the three kings. Was this a coincidence? Well, this, again, is one of the things which has kind of um, come together over the years that we have the picture of the shepherds and the wise men being there at the manger bed on the night that Jesus is born. In fact, Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel are two separate stories, and Matthew's gospel tells the story of the wise men. Luke's gospel tells the story of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. And in Matthew's gospel, the wise men seem to arrive at Bethlehem a couple of years later, because the child is described as a young child or a toddler, not as an infant or a newborn. So the wise men arrive at Bethlehem a couple of years after the birth of Jesus, um, and the Holy Family is obviously still living there, and that's when they come and worship the Christ child. But it is a wonderful preaching point that the two come together, the humble working-class shepherds and the aristocratic wise men uh, with their education and their wealth and their, and, and their riches and so forth. And the Lord Jesus comes to both the simplest uh, and the noblest. Yeah, like I, I've heard it said that uh, Archbishop Fulton, she said that the altar rail is, is the greatest act of democracy because you can have a rich Catholic right next to a destitute Catholic, both are on their knees, tilting their head back, sticking out their tongue like a child. The altar rail makes everybody equal. Yeah, and the, and the altar of Bethlehem makes everybody equal. And this is a good lesson from the shepherds and the wise men coming together to worship the Christ child. All of them are equal because they're all, as you say, they're all on their knees. Hmm. 
Talking to Father Dwight Longnecker, his book is called The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. This is a good gift. Christmas is right around the corner. You can pick up a couple of copies from SophiaInstitutePress.com. SophiaInstitutePress.com. The book is called The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. We're going to continue. I got more questions for the good father on his book called The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. Author, well-known priest, Father Dwight Longnecker. We'll be right back. Don't change that dial. I got some more questions to ask him about the book. Christmas is right around the corner. Pick up Father Dwight Longnecker's book. It's called The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. SophiaInstitutePress.com. SophiaInstitutePress.com. Grab a couple of copies. This is something that should be in every Catholic shelf. We want to make low-information Catholics into high-information Catholics. And the Christmas season is a perfect time to pick up a book just like this and get a Catholic conversation started amongst your family. So, Father, a couple of other questions I want to ask you. Uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, he depicted himself as a shepherd. In many, you know, John chapter 10, verse 16, I am the good shepherd. Uh, you know, I, I, I come, uh, I go after the one lost sheep. You know, I leave the 99. All the, the metaphor of shepherd is built into the very person of Jesus Christ. Our Lord, like the shepherds that you're describing back in, the, in Palestine in those days of Christ and before, they were very humble people. Uh, you know, you, you said even considered richly unclean, maybe a reputation of not paying their taxes, but uh, they, they, they definitely had a very humble blue collar job. The, so the question is, why must we keep humility at the forefront of everything we do as Catholics? Well, because if you're not humble, you're not really doing the Lord's work. He can only <laughs> remember um, the story of the Annunciation teaches us that he he puts down the mighty from their seat, and he exalts the humble and meek. And the example of the Blessed Virgin Mary is that he's able to use her because of her humility, and he's able to use us through our humility. And sometimes in the confessional, for instance, I will hear uh, from the other side a person who's despairing because of their repeated sin, and they fall back into sin and fall back into their um, same old habits. And I'll say, you know, Maybe the Lord has given you this thorn in the flesh to help to keep you humble and to keep you reliant on him. And this is not to make any ex excuse for the sin, but to receive God's forgiveness and stay close to him, knowing that it is our human failures and weakness which help us to re rely on his grace. That's a beautiful pastoral answer. Very well put. It just it spoke to it spoke to me. I felt uh, that you were speaking directly to me. Father, so God often works in, in seemingly strange ways. We all know that. We've all experienced it. The birth of our Lord Jesus Christ is a great example of this reality. So can you discuss this for a moment, the incarnation, this incredible event? Yeah, In the incarnation, we actually um, contemplate the astonishing fact that the creator of the universe steps, in, steps into human history, steps into the human race, uh, physically and literally, by taking flesh of the Blessed Virgin Mary. 
And this is the thing we have to keep reminding ourselves, which distinguishes our Christian faith, our Catholic faith, from every other religion and every other expression of Christianity. Other religions follow wise teachers and gurus and spiritual masters and self-help mentors and all sorts of people like that and teach people to be good and to be righteous and to be spiritual. But our Lord Jesus Christ comes, and he is something different from all that. He is the second person of the Trinity, taking human flesh for the redemption of the world. And that basic gospel is in danger of being lost in our Catholic Church, too, when too often uh, our pastors and our people turn the Catholic faith into what I call moralistic therapeutic deism. In other words, a religion of good works. <laughs> a religion of respectability, a religion of simply trying to be a better person. That's not really the core of what our faith is about. We might become a better person and learn to do good works by following the Lord Jesus, but being redeemed by his saving work on the cross is what it's all about. Amen. Father, the nativity of our Lord should teach us that God makes it so very simple to come to him. With that said, we seem to always make it so complicated. Why? do we as Catholics fall into this trap so very often? Well, I think it's because um, people like to have like to complicate matters because then they have an excuse not to follow them. You know the old saying, the answer is usually simple, but it's not easy. And the Catholic faith and our Christian faith is simple, but it's not easy. Uh, and therefore, we're called to follow the Lord Jesus in that simplicity um, but also with a sense of self-discipline and self-respect to be able to follow him to the best of our ability in that humility that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. So so what can the nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ teach the entire universal church, Catholic church today? Well, one of the things that I uh, treasure about my memories in Jerusalem for those two months and in Bethlehem was actually visiting Jerusalem and Bethlehem, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and the Church of the Holy Nativity in Bethlehem. These are two of the most ancient churches in the world. The Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem was built there in the 4th century by the Empress Helena, the mother of the Emperor Constantine. And the story of how we know that this is the site of Jesus' birth is really interesting. Uh, I'll just take a moment to explain what I mean. Soon after, about 100 years after our Lord's uh, death, resurrection, and ascension, the Emperor Hadrian uh, learned where the birth of Jesus took place because the people in Bethlehem had remembered it and passed the tradition on for about 100 years. He destroyed the site and built a pagan temple on the site. So 300 years later, or 200 years later, when Helena comes along, she says, where was Jesus born? And everybody said, it's right there where Hadrian built that pagan temple 200 years ago. So therefore, because he built that pagan temple there, it preserved the site from time immemorial, and that's where the Church of the Holy Nativity stands today. So when you visit the grotto under the Church of the Holy Nativity on your pilgrimage, you are most certainly visiting the very cave where Jesus was born. And why is that important? It's important because it reminds us of the Incarnation, that this took place in human history, at a real time, with real people who were real shepherds on those real hillside, on those real hillsides, living in real houses at that very place. Mm. And you can visit it even to this day. I love it. Love it. You're listening to uh, the Terry and Jesse show with Father Dwight Longnecker. We're talking about his book, The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. 
So, uh, Father, what book are you working on now? Because uh, it seems like you're always writing. You always got something on the pipeline. Yeah, I'd like to remind people that um, actually the, Beth- the book of the Bethlehem Shepherds is kind of a sequel to the earlier book about the Magi. Okay. And then on my website, DwightLongenecker.com, I'm going to be having a special Advent offer to be able to get both of those books for Christmas. So come on over to DwightLongenecker.com and read my blog and, and get the latest updates. About other books, um, you probably also have in your books to read pile, Jesse, um, my autobiography, Conversion Story, which came out over the summer, published by Ignatius Press. It's called There and Back Again, A Somewhat Religious Odyssey. Uh, and for years, people have been asking me to write my conversion story, so I finally got around to it. Um, and uh, that book's also available and has been uh, really popular so far. Father, did your training as a, was was it Episcopalian or Anglican? Which one was it? Anglican, yeah. Your in the Church as- of England. In, in the Church of England, because I know they have a, a robust, beautiful, high view of liturgy. Did a lot of that influence you when you became a Catholic priest in a diocese? Did you bring a lot of that beauty and robustness into the Catholic liturgy? Yeah, that's one of the things I talk about in, in my autobiography. In the last chapter, I said, what would happen if I brought the vener- the, the love of scriptures uh, and the Bible, which I had from my evangelical upbringing, with an understanding and appreciation of beautiful architecture, beautiful liturgical music, uh, beautiful liturgy, and so forth from the Anglican tradition, and put that all together in an American Catholic parish. And so at Our Lady of the Rosary in Greenville, South Carolina, we have done just that. We built a beautiful traditional Romanesque church, which you can visit by going to, going to OLR church, olr.church and see take a tour of the church. We have uh, employ a a great young organist and choir master to to bring up the musical tradition. We celebrate Mass at Orientum with all altar boys and most people receiving communion on the tongue at the altar rail. So it's a beautiful, we, we say it's it's not the traditional Latin Mass, but we call it a traditional celebration of the Novus Ordo. Mm. So, um, and I heard in your break about a guy in California who's encouraging people to move to places that are safe. <laughs> we have lots. We have lots of people moving from the West Coast to Greenville, South Carolina. We have a wonderful classical Catholic school uh, in the parish as well, K-4 to grade 12, uh, and uh, the parish is thriving, full of young families. We're really excited by what God's doing. I guess uh, I guess that's an invite to uh, people in the West Coast, right? <laughs> it absolutely is. Yep. Come and join us. <laughs> okay, Father, how can people pick up your books? Tell us again where they go to pick up your books and read your blog. Well, they can get it through Amazon and the mainstream booksellers, but also the Sophia Institute website. But I encourage people to come to DwightLongenecker.com and order it. Uh, I have a bookstore there with these books and all my other books. And remember, the poor old author gets a little bit more if you order it directly from him. There you go. Father, we got about two minutes left. Uh, I'd like you to address just lay people in general right now. Lay people are scratching their heads. There's a lot of lay people seem to be very confused. There seems to be a lot of mixed messages. A lot of infighting, too, amongst good lay Catholic men, you know. Uh, it seems like, uh, you know, there's this uh, uh, auto demolition going on in the church right now, as Pope Paul VI said. Any words, any pastoral words to all the lay people that have, have incredible respect for you on, uh, on basically uh, how, we should, how we should comport ourselves right now, what demeanor we should have right now? Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the things we're learning through the present problems in the church um, is that a lot of Catholics tend to invest too much in what's going on in the Vatican. They invest too much in what's happening in Rome. And remember, down through the ages, most Catholics would have been hard-pressed to even identify the Pope. 
maybe they knew who it was and they had a picture of him in their in their in their house and they knew that was the pope but pretty much the pope came out on the balcony on sundays and wore his white his white robes and waved everyone and gave the blessing and that was it yeah. and now we pay too much attention to what's going on in rome i encourage people to say look Good look to what's local look to your parish look to your family look to your school and focus on the the lord jesus christ and his blessed mother on the sacraments of the church and living that life roll up your sleeves and get busy doing what you can with what you have where you are and don't worry so much about the future it's in god's hands and don't worry so much about the big church it's in god's hands worry about the little church your domestic church right <laughs> yeah. yeah focus on the little church okay that, going back to our theme of humility Focus on your family, focus on your own spirituality, focus on your life with the Lord, focus on your holy reading, focus on building up the church, building up your local school, building up your local diocese, and focus on those things. And don't worry, God's in charge. Amen. Thanks, Father. We'll, we'll uh, have to have you on again for your other books. Uh, you've been listening to Father Di Dwight Longnecker. Go to his website. What's your website, Father, so they can get your books? What's your website? Yeah, DwightLongnecker.com. It's real easy. DwightLongnecker.com. Yep. Secret of Bethlehem Shepherds. Pick up the book. God bless you, Father. We'll see you next time. Stick okay, thank you right so here. much. God bless you. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. Terry and Jesse Show. I just want to give my reflections on Michael Voris' departure from Church Militant. I want to let Michael Voris know that me and Terry were praying for you, brother, for your healing, for your liberation. And uh, we extend the hand of fellowship to you. You can count on our prayers and our love, as the Catechism says in paragraph 1766, to love is to will the good of another. Uh, Terry and myself were committed to using this, uh, your departure from CM, as a way to unite, unite apostles, to unite the clans, to borrow the battle cry from Michael Matt, unite the clans. Terry and myself, we've committed to working with uh, and collaborating with any brother and sister in Christ in any way we can in the Catholic Church. Can you say the Nicene Creed? Do you strive to live in a state of grace? Do you submit to the teaching authority of the church? Then you're our brother and sister in Christ. <clears throat> we need to put a smile on our Lord's face right now and really try to live out that unity prayer. John chapter 17, verse 20 and 23. Let's pray for unity at a time like this, not division, not uh, pointing fingers, not, not uh, you know, kicking somebody when they're down. Let's pray that our good Lord, as he's promised, leaves the 99 sheep and reaches out and he snatches Michael Voris and puts puts him on his shoulders and carries him back home. Look at, I was trained as a Los Angeles cop and when your partner goes down in the street, uh, you call for help. You put out a, a, a quick call. It's called man down, man down. At this point, a cop, we circle the wagons. We tend to the officer's wounds. We don't kick or stomp a wounded officer when they're down, and we don't do that to a fellow Catholic. At least I don't, because that's the way I've been trained. It's called chivalry. It's defend those that are weak, those that are helpless. 
some people say, well, you know what? I've been offended by by things that Michael Voris has said. All right. Well, if you've been offended, what, the, what does the Lord tell us? If, if some of you say, well, he's my enemy because he said this, that, and the other. Okay. The Lord says, love your enemies and pray for them. So this is an opportunity to take the moral high ground. Thousands of Catholics are looking at all of us at podcasts and they're seeing how we react to this tragedy. Let's take this man's tragedy and use it for God's glory. Let this be a rallying cry for unity, not division, because that's exactly what Satan wants. I saw my friend John Henry uh, on video and he put out a statement on Michael Voris leaving Church Milton. It was absolutely classy. Nothing less than I'd expect from John Henry Weston. Absolutely virtuous and pleasing to God. John Henry Weston is a true example of a disciple of Christ. Way to go, brother. You know, the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, says, Let your speech be always in grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. St. Augustine once said, when he saw somebody who was a, a, a sinful person, steeped in sin, he said, but for the grace of God, there go I. My, my disorders, my imperfections and defects may be different from yours and Michael's, but I have my own disorders, imperfections and defects that I have to work on. That's why the Bible tells me to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. And I understand the most important thing in my life is getting to heaven, not getting behind a microphone. I'll, I'll do this as long as God permits me to do this. But the goal of my life is to become as holy as possible and get to heaven. Not to, be get, not to get behind a microphone every day. I, I consider this a pure gift so long as God gives me life and breath and strength. But my life is to keep on working on my personal holiness. And remember, there's nothing wrong with admonishing sinners. That's called fraternal correction. It's an act of charity. The Catechism tells us in paragraph 2447 that fraternal correction is a spiritual work of mercy. And so we should do that. We must do that. Uh, but let's, let's not forget the overriding principle that we have to love the sinner and hate the sin. We're commanded to love all, not like, love. And yet we're all also commanded to stand against sin, to oppose sin. And remember that as Catholics, we don't judge a person's soul because all of us are in the same boat. We're all sinners. The reason we judge people's actions is because we want everybody to end up in heaven, including ourselves. So as Catholics, we judge people's actions, not people's souls. Judging somebody's actions is known as fraternal correction, or admonishing a sinner, and it should be based on the motive of love, which is the greatest of all virtues. I want to pray for myself and for all of us. This is a short prayer taken from St. Patrick's breastplate. Just repeat after me. This is a beautiful prayer to incorporate into your prayer life. It's, it's part of the long St. Patrick's breastplate prayer, but it's just one paragraph. And, and I try to say this every day. It goes like this. In the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ with me.
Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. And I want to pray to St. Joseph. As Catholic men, we should have a devotion to St. Joseph, praying for his protection every day. Every single man, we are the patriarchs. We should be going to Joseph and asking for his protection every day. O St. Joseph, whose protection is so great, so prompt, so strong before the throne of God, I place in you all my interests and desires. O St. Joseph, do assist me by your powerful intercession and obtain for me your divine Son all spiritual blessings through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that having engaged here below your heavenly power, I may offer my thanksgiving and homage to the most loving of fathers. O St. Joseph, I never weary contemplating you and Jesus asleep in your arms. I dare not approach while he reposes near your heart. Press him in my name and kiss his fine head for me and ask him to return the kiss when I draw my dying breath. St. Joseph, patron of departing souls, pray for me. Amen. And I also want to pray for uh, Michael Voris. I want to pray for Christine Niles. Anybody else who's been affected by this? Soul of Christ, sanctify them. Body of Christ, save them. Blood of Christ, inebriate them. Water from the side of Christ, wash them. Passion of Christ, strengthen them. O good Jesus, hear them. Within your wounds, hide them. Separated from you, let them never be. From the evil one, protect them. At the hour of their death, call them and close to you. Keep them, that with your saints and angels, they may be praising you forever and ever. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come by the powerful intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, your most well-beloved spouse. In the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, that's a wrap, church. We'll, uh, this is a Terry and Jesse show. We, we love you guys like a family. You know why? Because we are family. And let's remember, we all have to wake up and we all have to make sure that our interior life, our spiritual life is in order. Every single one of us. Make sure that we're not skipping on our daily prayers. Make sure that we're not skipping on the sacraments of the church. Make sure that we're not skipping in our devotions. Make sure that we're not skipping on reading our Bible, praying our rosary. And pursuing a life of virtue, virtue, virtue. Why? Because we're all called to be great saints. You know that. Don't miss the opportunity. Set yourselves apart from this corrupt generation. Be saints. You weren't meant to fit in. You were meant to stand out. And as Mother Angelica once said, those who tell you the truth love you. That's us. We love you. Those who tell you what you want to hear love themselves. The world tells you what they want you to hear. Faith is what gets you started. Hope is what keeps you going. 
Love is what brings you to the end. I know a lot of people, they work for their, for their degrees after their names. They want their BA, BS, MA, PhD, MDiv, STL. Well, guess what? We need to work for the one degree before our name. That's ST. That's the only degree that really matters. Get that ST before your name. It's a much more difficult degree to attain because it's going to take a lifetime. And you don't get your diploma until you're dead. And Jesus gives you that degree. I don't care if you're 5 or 105. God from all eternity chose you to be where you're at right now at this time in history to change the world. We're called to holiness. Holiness according to our state in life. Make yourself as holy as possible. Work on your domestic church, men. Let's make our domestic churches as holy as possible. And let's remember the battle cry that the crusaders would would proclaim in loud voices during the Middle Ages. Christ conquers, Christ reigns, Christ commands. That's us. That's us. We serve the virgin most powerful. A 12-star general. Pray your rosary every day. Read your Bible every day. And by doing so, you inflict pain and torment and drive demons away from you and your family. Let's unite our prayers to the heel of the Blessed Virgin Mary. That's a wrap, family. Stick around. Up next, more VMPR. As for us, the Terry and Jesse Show, we are out. We'll see you next time. Same Christ time. Same Christ channel. God bless you. Keep the faith. And remember, Christmas is around the corner. Pick up Father Longnecker's book. God bless you. See you next time.